Again, so grateful to be here and to share a little part of this with you guys. Um, I appreciate your flexibility with us on the time thing. Um, so typically these are one-hour sessions, and I know that we're, we're we're pushing that, and then our time is a little compressed. So they, they said that we could be a little flexible with the meal and that sort of thing. I appreciate that. If we get to a point where we have to drop out a session, we're, we're talking about that too, So and that's fine. Um, <clears throat> I'm hoping my voice lasts. I have a thing with my throat that sometimes hits me, so um, hopefully that won't happen. Uh, in fact, I might talk a little softer and turn me up just a teeny bit more so I don't push it too hard. Uh, thanks, Luke. <clears throat> so, what's that? I'm sorry. I have a water. Yep, I'm good. Thank you. I, ironically, water is kind of what does it to me, though, so I have to be careful. It's, it's a strange thing. I think it's a, my mother dealt with it, and so uh, anyway, enough of that. <laughs> Let's get on to the next session here, dealing with doubt. Um, let me just take a moment, and we'll turn this over to the Lord in prayer as well. All right? Father, so grateful again to be here. We're just so humbled again by your grace, your mercy, your love, by the encouragement you give your children, and... Um, Lord, we certainly need that in today's age. And, and as the family is under attack, um, we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Lord, we continue to live by that and claim that. We thank you that we can turn to you in prayer um, for all of our needs. And um, I just pray that you'd be with us this hour as we discover how to help our children through different sessions of doubt. And um, please let your, your spirit fill this place. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> when um when I was in training uh, as a pilot for the Air Force, uh, they covered a lot of different aspects of flying. One of them that was really interesting to me um, was something called spatial disorientation. Um, the pilots in here, who, the, anybody heard of spatial, spatial disorientation, of course? Um, so what that means is that you can be flying along and your inner ear starts to play tricks on you. It can happen at nighttime. It can happen in clouds. It can even happen during the day, but not usually as often because your your visual um, indicators will, will set your inner ear correct. Usually it's when your visual... Uh, your vision is limited in some capacity, and your inner ear will start tricking you into thinking that you're in certain orientations that you're not. And they actually told us that it's a very serious thing to deal with, um, and people have died because they didn't deal with it properly. And they even played us audio tapes of pilots that had gone down because of this. They showed us some videos, and it was pretty alarming. I'm like, man, that just doesn't seem like that's it could be possible to be that severe. And so they trained on us, trained us how to deal with it, basically trust your instruments and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I went through the training and, and um, you know, but being trained is one thing and experiencing it is a whole other thing. And one particular day I was uh, taking off on, a, on the wing of, a, of another F-16. We were going to penetrate some cloud cover and then go out to Amoa and do a mission. And um, so we both took off, and before we hit the cloud cover, he, he, he wiggles me in, and I come into a fingertip formation. Fingertip formation is basically um, you're in a, a specific, they give you certain visual cues to fly your plane off of your flight leads plane. Our wingtips are three feet apart, and we're flying like 380, 400 miles an hour. And so you can imagine that being in that, in that orientation, you're literally fractions of a second from 
gliding, right? And so as a, as, a, as a wingman, you're constantly taking your cues off of your flight lead. And the reason that we fly in fingertip is because when you get into the clouds, you can stay close enough where you can still see him through the clouds, and then you can come up together, and you're not, you know, it's not a big gaggle trying to get through a cloud cover. And so he pulls me into fingertip, and we enter the clouds. And this particular day, um, it was just a very thick layer of clouds. And we're flying and flying and flying, and all of a sudden... My goodness, if I didn't start to experience spatial disorientation. And uh, the strangest thing started to happen. My inner ear started to tell me that we had actually started to bank and we're turning sideways and we're actually heading down towards the ground. That's, I mean, I'm telling you that that is what my inner ear was telling my brain was happening to us. And uh, it wasn't, my mind went to a story that I heard while I was in T-38 training, uh, AT-38 training, where um, the flight lead had a four-ship and fingertip, and his, they were in clouds, and um, his instrumentation actually started to malfunction. And in order to keep his plane right with the instruments, it actually did that very same thing. And when they exited the clouds, the other four ships stayed with him. When they exited the cloud over Almogordo, New Mexico, there were four uh, AT-38s flying straight down at the city of Almogordo, and... It was a it was a breakout situation. The four jets broke out in four different directions, and they got so close to the city the windows were shattered. And one of the jets happened to be in the orientation of heading to the mountains, and there just happened to be a crevice that they could get up through. And luckily, nobody died that day. But so that's the that's you know, and that's what my inner ear was saying: this is happening to you right now, and you need to break away from this flight lead, and and. Uh, reorient yourself so that you don't die and it just went on and on and my training came back trust your flight lead trust your instruments so i glanced back at my instruments as fast as i can while not losing my position and the clouds he's flashing in and out between the clouds and sure enough my instruments are telling me that we're climbing we're straight and level but my inner ear is saying nope it's a lie you're gonna die you're gonna die <laughs> and so uh <clears throat> I, I decided to trust my training and uh sure enough a few seconds later, we break through the clouds. There's the horizon and the blue sky, and my inner ear goes, oh, sorry, never mind, my bad. <laughs> and uh, everything recalibrates, and, and I thought, man, that was just so uncomfortable. And I was very grateful for the training, because if I had not had that training, who knows what I, where I would have ended up. And um, the reason I share that story with you is because Guys, I, I believe that there's something that similarly happens to our young people. And I don't call it spatial disorientation. I call it spiritual disorientation. And it can happen when they experience an episode of severe doubt, spiritual doubt. And their instruments may tell them one thing. You know, our, our instruments, right? God's Word, our flight lead, Jesus Christ. But inside, in their in their own being, they're being told, this, this, this can't be true. This this can't be true. I mean, there's just the stories are just wild and crazy. And who's ever seen Jesus? And what what's with the Holy Spirit? And they start experiencing, especially when that's being reinforced by the world, right? By peers and and maybe an education system that's anti God and and movies and books and entertainment and social media. They're being bombarded by the lies of the enemy to get them spiritually disoriented. Why does the enemy do that? Because if you can get somebody spiritually disoriented, you can destroy them. You can get their eyes off of the truth. 
and into a, a pool of lies that can just ruin their lives and the lives and the lives around them. And so um, I went through a, a period of severe spiritual disorientation when I was from my ages about 11 years old to about 13. Because um, in my nature, I was going to be an engineer. There was no other outcome for me. <laughs> I was a very logical, analytical kid who loved science and technology, and it's just the way I was going. And when I hit about 11 years old, it just started to dawn on me that what I was being taught in school and what I was being taught in the Bible were completely opposing ideologies, ideologies about creation, about life, about all of it. And, and I was coming to a severe juxtaposition about what I was going to do with it. And, and I, it was really becoming an internal turmoil for me because I thought both this and the science and technology and all that I'm being taught in school are completely, they're mutually exclusive. They are incompatible. They both can't be true. They just can't. Logic tells me they can't both be true. And what am I going to do with this? And, and as, as a very analytical person, I know not everybody goes through this, but I realized I had to choose one or the other. And so I remember I was, uh, I was in an evangelical Lutheran church at the time, and we were going through a confirmation. And um, one of the, <clears throat> towards the end of that, of that confirmation training um we were supposed to have a one-on-one -on -one with the pastor and so i was my turn and and we were getting i was getting ready to be confirmed and and i sat down with the pastor in his office and we talked a little bit and he says chuck do you have any questions you know about god or anything and boy did i have a question <laughs> and i said i i asked i do have a i have a question for you pastor and you see, I had, I had boiled it down to one question. All of this confusion and spiritual disorientation that I was experiencing, I had narrowed it down and whittled it down to one question. And I said, Pastor, according to the Bible, where do the dinosaurs fit in? And I thought, and the reason is because I go to museums and I see huge fossils of Tyrannosaurus rexes and Brachiosaurus, and I'm like... These things actually existed. I can touch them. I can feel them. There's, you cannot tell me they don't exist. Look at the fossil record of this. And yet, in the Bible, in my 11, 13 years of being raised as a Christian, not once did anybody ever talk about the dinosaurs. So I'm thinking, I got a problem here. And both, I'm being taught different things from both sides here. It really comes down to, if the pastor can tell me how the Bible explains dinosaurs, then at least I'll have a foothold on believing the rest of it. But if they can't explain that, you can't deny the existence of dinosaurs and what the science world, scientific world is teaching me. And the pastor looked at me, and this was, remember, this was quite a few years ago because I'm getting kind of old. <laughs> and he didn't have all the, the resources that we have today. And he said, well, Chuck, honestly, we don't really know. We think that perhaps between verses 1 and 2 in the Bible where it says the earth was void and without form, that there might have been eons of times where the dinosaurs evolved and became the creatures that they are and roamed the earth. And they all died out. And then God created Adam and Eve. And, and he gave me this answer. And as I was sitting there listening to him, I thought, I just don't believe it. That is not true. And he is grasping for straws. Let me tell you, folks, uh, that when I left that office... I was spiritually disoriented, like in a severe way. 
And that lasted for another 14 years of my life. And I think that at any moment in time, for some reason, God protected me. But if the wrong person and the wrong situation and the wrong scenario had come along, because I was heading towards science and technology, my faith could have been completely snatched from me. And I would be standing before you. I wouldn't be standing before you, but I'd be an atheist today. (laughs) And so um, that's spiritual disorientation. And I have to ask you all a question. Let me ask the parents here first. Um, How many of you have ever experienced in any shape or form some sort of spiritual doubt in your life? Can I just see an honest? There you go. All right. I really appreciate that. Now let me ask you another question, parents. How many of you have specifically and purposefully talked about the doubt that your children are experiencing or have experienced? Can I see a show of hands? Okay. Good. Not bad. I did this in in Denver, actually, a number of years ago. 500 parents out there. Everybody raise their hand the first question. The second question, I think there was 12. Do you see a problem? Man, how many young men and women, how many young teenagers out there, like me, are sitting there where their, their future faith is hanging on the balance and nobody's talking to them about it? Guys, we have a tall order. We had better deal with the doubt in our children's lives. Or they're going to be in a spiritual disorienting situation where they could crash and burn and you might lose them forever. I was this close for 13, 14 years of my life. And I'll follow up this at the end of that with the, with the story that, that tells you how God resolved that for me. But that's why I feel very, very passionate about this session. We are obligated, we have a responsibility to help our children deal with the absolute certainty of the doubt that they are going to experience at different times in their lives. Okay, It may be small, but it could be big. I think it's a huge contributing factor to the 80% that are leaving because the enemy's got a lie for everybody. And there's nothing more powerful than a lie that is told over and over and over and over again. And there are some lies that are so powerful that they just sound like the truth now, evolution being one of them. And it is in every textbook, it is in every museum, it's everywhere. It's permeated our culture, it's permeated the science, uh, the scientific community to the point where you'll have professors stand up and say that if you believe in God, you don't belong in science. That's how powerful that lie has become. And your children are going to deal with it, even if they're raised in church, even if they're homeschooled or private schooled or public schooled, they're going to deal with it. And you need to help them deal with it, okay? And so um, I, I teach a session completely on apologetics, too, because I think that um, apologetics is a huge answer to helping kids deal with the doubt that they're going to face. Okay? So um, dealing with doubt, strengthening your children's faith, and quite honestly, in some instances, in many instances, probably strengthening your own faith. I had a number of adults come up to me after this session saying, Chuck, I'm struggling myself. How am I going to pass this on to my kids? I said, well, you and I need to work on this (laughs) because you can't pass on what you don't have. So you better get this resolved right now, right? Your future, your future spiritual destiny depends on it. And so do your children. Let's resolve it. And, and first of all, let me just also say doubt isn't sin. Do you know what sin is? Unbelief. And there's a big difference. Don't let your doubt turn into unbelief then it does become sin okay 
But doubting in and of itself is not sinful. It's something that we all experience, just as is evidenced right here, and that I personally experienced, okay? And have from time to time. Dealing with doubt. Um, <clears throat> who struggles with doubt? I think every person that's ever experienced it. God is asking us to believe in things we can't see. That's a, that's a pretty big order, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, you've got to believe in something you can't see. Now, he doesn't leave us there, though. And we're going to talk about how he helps us through that. Um, let, me, let me let you know, too, and your children, that you are not alone in this. There, you have some pretty, pretty influential cus, uh, company when it comes to dealing with doubt. You'll find an episode of this in Matthew um, chapter 11. I want to turn there and read this section to you. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, I'll set it, I'll set this up for you. Uh, John the Baptist, right, who was conceived and and was from the time he was inside the womb was designated and called to be and prepare the way of the Lord. This is John the Baptist, right, who dedicated his entire life, right, to preparing the way of the Lord, who who sat there and baptized Jesus Christ and said, Behold the, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, who spent years eating wild, you know, wild locusts and honey, right, in order to prepare the way of the Lord, right? And so then he, he realizes that, that Herod is sinning publicly and he needs to be called on it, so he does. And he calls Herod out on his sin, and so Herod throws him in prison. And while John the Baptist in prison, who's lived out this ministry, dedicating his entire life to the ministry, he, he starts to have a spiritual disorientation episode. John the Baptist. Let's hear what, he, what happens to him. And it starts out in, uh, in verse 2. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? <laughs> this is John the Baptist. After all of that, who leapt inside of Elizabeth's womb when Mary told her that she was conceived of by the Holy Spirit, now, when it really counts and the rubber meets the road, he's saying, guys, you need to go ask Jesus if he's really the guy. Talk about spiritual disorientation. Talk about an episode of doubt. You're not unique in your experience with this. John the Baptist experienced it too. And we're going to come back to John's story, okay? All right. Um, I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as possible. I don't need to repeat the 80%. I believe that that's a huge contributing factor um, of this. Um, the 80% leave the faith because of the cares of the world. That's a big part of it. Because of the lack of training. That's a big part of it. Um, because of uh, lack of spiritual discernment. And they are taken um, like a lamb to the slaughter. They just, you know, they don't even know what's happening. And then finally, because of unresolved doubt. I personally believe that. Um, without solid faith, we cannot be solid witnesses. And that was what happened to me. During that next 14-year period, even though I didn't walk away from the faith, I could not be a testimony for it. Even when I was, it was flying fighters, I could not be a testimony with my mouth for Jesus Christ because what if they asked me the same question? I was muzzled as a believer. I didn't dare express my faith. 
because of the unresolved doubt in my life. I was living a pithy life of Christianity. Um, it's important that, that you are able to, as parents, to discern when your children are experiencing this doubt. Um, and you can do that by a number of ways. First of all, help your kids understand that there is no subject off limits with you. They should be able to be free to, uh, to talk with you about absolutely anything, including their questions about, does God really exist? Um, I remember after I did this session, I had a, a, a gal came up to me afterwards and she said, Chuck, I just really appreciate this. I've got to share with you something that happened to us. She said, I'm the, I'm the Sunday school teacher for fifth and sixth graders in our church. And um, there was this one little girl that the parents were just dropping off to come to our Sunday school class every day. And I thought, well, this is great. I can minister to her. Even though the parents aren't, you know, aren't involved, that's fine. And so uh, they went through a few weeks of this. And finally, she said, we were, I think we were talking about Noah or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, this little girl, Sarah, she raises her hand. And she says, teacher? And, and, and the teacher said, yeah, what is it, Sarah? She said, how do I know that any of this is true? <laughs> and she was like, wow, that's bold. And then she realized, maybe Sarah's not alone in this. And so rather than trying to just give her a pat answer, she said, Sarah, really good question. And she said, kids, and she said, there was like 11 or 12 other kids in there. And she said, kids, can I ask you a question? Sarah asked her, how many of you have ever wondered the same thing, if any of this is true? And she said, Chuck, every single hand went up including my own daughters. <laughs> and she realized, I can't just teach this simple, cute Sunday school story. I have got to deal with the doubts of these children if they're going to make it, if they're going to survive. And so um, <clears throat> it's something that doesn't happen through osmosis. They aren't, they're not just going to catch it, all right? You have to be purposeful about it. And if, if anything if you get from our sessions, I hope you understand that we're trying to be very, very purposeful. Things don't happen by, by chance. If you, don't, if you don't have a target to aim for, you're not going to hit a thing. And so this is the target today. Um, no subject is off limits. That's one way. Um, one of the things, one simple technique that, that I used in our home is we had something called question of the meal. And uh, it was a fun activity that we did. We would sit down. We tried to have meals together, breakfast, lunch, and supper. Obviously, that didn't happen all the time. But especially at supper time, <clears throat> where things kind of calm down and everybody's really hungry and, and the food is going and it's a little more quiet, I would say, guys, we're going to have a question of the meal, all right? Um, I'm going to ask a question. <clears throat> we're going to go around the table. And while, some, while one person is talking, nobody else is talking. They have the talking stick. <laughs> and so... Um, I would ask a question. It might be something simple and fun. It could be something like, who is your favorite superhero and why? And you know what? You can learn a lot from your kids by them answering that question, I tell you. Um, but it might be something else, too. It might be something like, um, uh, what, what temptation did you deal with this, this week um, when you were when you're by yourself? Or when you were at, uh, when you were at in, in basketball this week, what what struggle did you have with any of the other students and, and how did you deal with it? Or, you know, just something like that, a little deeper. Anyway, just let the Lord lead you in those questions and really some amazing things come out of that activity is you get to peer into your children's hearts and they will say things that you can store away and revisit with them one-on-one. -on -one. And in addition to you learning about your children, your children, your other kids will learn about them too. 
because everybody has to listen. And everybody gets a turn to giving the answer, including mom and dad. Um, so th- there's just a real simple way of, of peeking into the heart of your child. And it, it might be, what aspect of Christianity have you had the most doubt about? Pretty straightforward, right? And then you, then you, you commit to resolving that and helping them through it. Um, so, question of the meal. I'll, I'll tell you one more uh, place in time that you can get a glimpse into your children's heart to see if they're struggling with this. And it is at bedtime. <laughs> and for you that have young children, you know what bedtime means, right? You're exhausted. They're cranky. Just get them to bed because I need my hour of you know quiet, right? Um, but let me tell you something. There's something special about de- bedtime. Uh, they're trying to delay it, right? You're trying to accelerate it. So there's this built-in con- you know, conflict happening. Um, but you know what? If you, if you can sit down on the bed with them, and they might think that they're winning by, letting, by delaying things a little bit, they will, they will forfeit a piece of their heart to you to stay up for another 10 minutes. <laughs> Capitalize on it. Use it. Hey, Mary, are you doing okay? What, what did you struggle with this week? You know, um, have you ever wondered whether Jesus really did do what he said he did? I mean, those miracles are pretty crazy, aren't they? And just let them start speaking to you. And they will just open up. And that 10, 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes, all right, when you're exhausted and you want to do nothing else but go vegetate on a Netflix series or something, you're getting a glimpse into the heart of your child that is precious and priceless. Okay? Use it. Use it. Um, the other one I, I already had mentioned, I, occasionally, not often, and, and never with kids that are really experiencing doubt, I played the antagonistic atheistic college professor. Um, I didn't do it very often, maybe once or twice, and only when my, my children felt like they were, yeah, I'm ready, Dad, let's go, you know, kind of a thing. Um, I did it with the youth group at our church once, and I had the same response. It was amazing. Um, and so, you, But you do got to be careful, because it, it can, if you're not there to disciple them through it afterward, then it's probably not a good thing to do. So be careful with that. Um, I, I liken those episodes to spiritual emergency procedures. When I was flying... Every morning we had to do emergency procedures uh, training. And it was the most stressful part of the training. Because you'd sit in there and you're in a room uh, maybe about half the size. And all the uh, instructor pilots are with their desks on the outside of the room um, facing inward. And then the students are in front of those desks. And you'd all line up in the morning and, and, and the, the squadron commander would come in and you'd say, Lieutenant Black, you're 30,000 feet. you got smoke in the cockpit. you got an engine fire. What do you do? And you have like 60 seconds to stand up and recite any bold face to them that was supposed to be recited and work your way through that emergency procedure. The goal is to put an incredible amount of stress on somebody so, to see how they perform. And, and, and you're, you know, you're, the outcome of that depends on how well you do in the program, too. So, I mean, the stress was enormous. But the, it wasn't because they hated us. It was because they loved us, right? They wanted you to be able to work through your stress so that when you face it for real... You could handle it. So when you really are at 30,000 feet with smoke in the cockpit and an engine fire, then you know exactly what to do. You rehearsed it. And this is what it's going to take from parents with their kids. You rehearse spiritual emergencies (laughs) so that when they face them, they're ready. Okay? All right. 
Um, how do we help our children overcome doubt? And I think this is the this is probably the most important part of the session. So, if you're sleepy or hungry, please pay attention for at least ten more minutes. <laughs> um, my our daughter Emily, um, when she was a senior in high school, she was uh, the, our kids had the. Uh, I had the opportunity to take German at the public high school. It just so happened that it was taught by a friend of ours who was a fellow homeschooling dad, so we felt good with that. And um, he, t- he taught four years of German. And the beautiful thing about it was is if you made it through all four years, you got 16 dual credit courses towards college. And everybody, wow, that's great, I'm going to do that. And it started out as freshmen, like 130 kids. By the time they were seniors, there was like maybe five or six kids left because it was that intensive a program. And you can imagine, though, those five or six kids that were left, they were really smart kids, right? They were like um, the top. And so Emily was her senior in her senior year. She's in her fourth year of German. And she came to me. She said, Dad, there's this guy in German class. He's, he's really smart. He's, you know, he's got like, I think he got like a perfect on his ACT or something. And he had been raised in a family where he had just enough spiritual training where he was dangerous. Didn't believe in the inerrancy of of God's word. Didn't believe, but he knew it, right? And so he started asking Emily all these questions. He's really intellectual, deep, theological questions. And, And she said, Dad, he's asking me these questions. I don't have answers for all of them. I said, Emily, this is, well... For one thing, it's an opportunity for you to witness, right? But also, it's going to sharpen you, too. So, I'll tell you what, let's go through this together, right? And if you don't have an answer, come to me. We'll figure out a good answer, and biblically, and logically, and we'll, and we'll just see what happens through the course of the year, but make sure we're talking. So, we did that, right? We did that for a number of months, and then finally, um, that kind of, it kind of just disappeared <clears throat> a number of months later. And towards the end of the year, um, we had some kids home from college, um, and they were on, like, spring break or something. Thing. And um, all of a sudden, we're having this, this our family devotions that night, and this this came up, and all of a sudden, I realized I haven't checked with Emily for like quite a while. I said, Emily, hey, how's it going with so and so in in the German class? And she said, Actually, it's going really well, Dad. You know, he's kind of quit asking questions, but we really got into it. And then I realized, I wonder if this has in fact affected her. If she's got extra doubts because of those deep questions he was asking, I said, Emily, um, I got to ask you in front of the old the older kids too. I said, Have you experienced any spiritual doubt because of this episode? And she didn't even hesitate. She said, Nope, Dad, not at all. She says, If anything, my faith has grown from it. I said, Praise God for that. And then I realized, oh, man, maybe there's an opportunity for the younger kids to learn from this. I said, Emily, can you can you tell me? Is there anything that Mom and I did? to help you get through this and not only get through it, but strengthen your faith. Is there anything that we did properly? And she didn't hesitate. She said, absolutely, Dad. We're doing it right now. Family devotions. And then the two college kids piped right in. said, boy, absolutely, 100%. Same thing. At college, our faith always came back to our devotion time. And I thought, man, that's... Remarkable! I didn't grow up with devotions. God had pricked my heart to just make it part of our family life. It wasn't. It wasn't going to church, which is important. It wasn't youth group time, which is important. It wasn't Bible camp. It wasn't any of the things that we just sent our kids through for the programs. It was family devotions. Dad leading the, the, the sessions, having a chance for 
the kids to be transparent and honest and getting into God's word and getting into the deep and meaty stuff of it. That's what they will hang their spiritual hat on. And every one of my kids will tell you that today, that it was family devotion. So, mom and dad, if you're not having family devotions every day, that needs to be your goal. And, and dad, if you're here and you're not leading them, you should lead them, right? If you can't for some reason, or if there's a single mom here, or a mom whose, whose husband isn't engaged, then you need to do it, okay? It's too important to not go, uh, to, to go undone. Somebody needs to be leading spiritual devotions in the family. Um, so my next slide is on what are, what are the contents for an effective family devotions? And, and to be honest with you, there are some times where family devotions can backfire, and I had one gal came up. She said, you know, my dad had family devotions with us every night. I dreaded it and I hated it. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm really sorry for you. Then something was wrong. Something was missing. And so you, you need to be diligent about seeking out how to have family devotions that are going to connect with your kids. And so I've kind of comprised a list of what I felt was key ingredients for good, effective family devotions. Okay. Um, number one, to be consistent. And our goal was every night. Did we do it every night? No, because sometimes tournaments got in the way, practices got away. But that was our goal. Okay, so be consistent. Be purposeful. Don't just check off the box. Okay, make sure that your your devotions are hitting right where your kids are living. All right, and and your attitude to devotions is so key too. To to be humble. All right but confident, but be, be nurturing, right? But, but not, um, not passive. I mean, you, you just, you really need to be uh, engaged. And really the goal is to just cultivate that spiritual growth in the heart of every single child. Sometimes we separated for the younger kids. You know, we would take turns and then have older kids. Sometimes, but most of the time they're all together. Your younger, younger kids will pick up a lot more than what you think they will. I've always felt like um, oftentimes churches are guilty of this, but youth groups and stuff, they, they, they talk down to the lowest denominator of spirit. Well, the other ones are going to get bored. And maybe that's why she just hated her devotions is because she's just like bored with them. I don't know. But you, you, they're gonna, you need to give them meat. By the time they launch from your home, they need to be bored with regular Bible studies. All right? They should be teaching the Bible studies because you've given them meat. Just like Paul chastises one of the churches, I came to give you meat, but you, you're still on the milk. Get in deep. Get your kids in deep. All right. I get a. I did a youth. Uh, I, I, they wanted me to do a, a teen track up in Canada uh, one year, and um, so they, I said, "Well, yeah, I'll consider that." And so they said, "Send us your sessions." So I sent them the sessions I proposed, and they, they came. But whoa, we, you know, we can't do this. This is no. This is too much. I said, "Really? Why?" Well, because they're not ready for it. I said, "I think you underestimate your youth. I think they are ready for it. And I think they're bored." So I'll be honest with you, though. If you don't want me, this is what I've been called to teach. And so if you want something else, then you need to go to somebody else. Because it's just, and, and say, well, I'll talk to the board. And they prayed about it. And said, okay, we're going to give it a shot. We'll let you come in. I was like, okay, that's fine. So I went up there, and I gave them some meaty stuff. I mean, we got into it. And, uh, and the guy in the back that had called me, he's in the back all nervous, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so... Um, and afterwards, he came and he says, Chuck, man, he says, the responses I'm getting is just phenomenal. And after one of the sessions, a young guy came up to me, one of, the, one of the older teens. He said, Mr. Black, I just want to thank you. Nobody has ever talked to us like this before. <laughs> and I thought, what a shame. What a shame. 
So don't underestimate what your kids need. They need deep, meaty, spiritual training, okay? So um, so be purposeful, all right? Be applicable. <clears throat> um, like I said, don't just check off the scores. Figure out what they're struggling with and go there, right? And, and one of the things that I did to help me with this, because, again, you know, me being that introvert last of seven kids and all that sort of thing, this was not natural for me. Right? I had to work into this. But I'd wake up in the morning, and the first thing that I would start praying about was, Lord, what do you want me to teach my children, your children today? What, what's going to happen for devotions tonight, Lord? Okay? And, and that kind of leaves with a, a listen to the Spirit. I'm going to jump ahead. And, and I just start to listen to God's Spirit about what am I supposed to teach them. And, and maybe it would be something from my own Bible study, maybe something completely unique. But there were a couple of times where, or a number of times, where I'd sit down with my kids at 7 o'clock at night for our devotions, and there was just still nothing there. Like God was silent. I'm like, God, really? I mean, I'm here. It's now. I'm starting to get into this cold sweat because I'm supposed to. They're, they're looking at me like, okay, teach us something profound, Dad. I'm like, I got nothing. And, and, and so I would just start to ask them questions. And, and it's just amazing the Spirit would just swoop in and maybe a response from one of the kids and then we'd come back and forth and we'd go to the Bible. Sometimes those 15-minute devotions turned into like 45-minute episodes that were just so spiritually rich. And so uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to be a perfect planner of these things. Leave room for the Spirit to move, okay? Um, uh, back up here, be meaty. We've talked about that already. Be investigative. This is exploring their hearts. Remember that Reed Era said about, you know, looking at the hearts of your children, going where they need you. Um, and then uh, be innovative, okay? Uh, it was just, we were just talking about being innovative, right? Uh, washing the feet of your grandchildren. They will never forget that. I remember um, one, one devotion. I, I went into our bedroom and I put on my wife's white, furry, frilly uh, house coat. <laughs> And then I put a bandana on my head, and I took a plastic toy sword from one of the younger kids, and I came out to them, and they're like, oh, my gosh, Dad has lost his mind. You know how hard that was for me? <laughs> and I role-played one of the angels at the cross that was waiting for Jesus to say, come and stop this, who said, I can call 12 legions of angels if I wanted to. I role-played being one of those angels, one of the 12 legions of angels, waiting with my sword ready to, to, to just stop this chaos of our, that was causing pain and destruction for my king. But watching him go to the cross in silence because of his great love for his people. And I, even though I felt like a complete idiot doing that, <laughs> my kids will never forget. Whatever it takes, guys and gals, whatever it takes to reach your children, do what you need to spiritually, okay? So, uh, effective family devotions. Uh, please in- incorporate those into your into your um, family time. Um, let's talk a little bit about common areas of doubt. This is just a short list of the things your kids could doubt, okay? Um, but this is a place to start if you don't know where to start. God's existence, and in every one of these, there are a session, an hour-long session, all on their own, right? Um, your, your pastors can give you some great resources for, for each one of these, all right? Um, and again, if you're a student, you can do your own research and find ways to do this. God's existence, the literal creation, all right, as, as described in Scripture, the truth of the Bible, the reality of Jesus and his sacrifice, 
How about this one? The existence of hell. Wow, there's a huge trend in recent decade, uh, the recent decade of, of getting rid of hell, right? Because God's a God of love, and he wouldn't really say it's just metaphorical. It's like, no, Jesus takes us there. He, sh- he tells us that it's real, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm telling you, when you get rid of hell, do you know what you get rid of? You get rid of the need for Jesus. And so do not buy into the movement that's happening in, in pseudo-Christianity of getting rid of hell, all right? I, I don't like the concept of hell either, but Jesus said it, so I'm going to believe it, all right? And, our, and so just help your kids through that one, our salvation. How about God's love for us? How many has ever doubted God's love for you? Oh, man, I've been there a hundred times, right? How could, he, how could you love me, God? I'm, so, I'm such a wretch, just like Paul says. I've failed you again. Um, so each of these are just some, some starting places. Um, okay, let me go back up here for a second. Uh, let me just finish up with you on, on my story, and, and then we'll wrap this session up. Um, fast forward 14 years. <clears throat> I've been through pilot training. I went through F-16 training. Um <clears throat> Getting ready to go to go to Desert Storm and fight for our country. Um, <clears throat> I can't get into that story too long because it's too much, but it's an interesting one. Uh, my squadron had already deployed, and I was I was there at Shaw Air Force Base with about five or six guys had gotten there before me. They were, we were all in what's what's called a, a mission qualification training MQT, and so basically it was where you were going to learn how to employ your F-16 for that particular squadron squadron's role in the Air Force. And so it was about a five-week program, and everybody that graduated from that five-week program were given orders and sent to Desert Storm. And so I was in, in that line. I was the last guy. No one came in after me. And by the time everybody ahead of me had finished and got sent, I went to my check ride to get qualified. And um, I think Andrea's prayers were working against me because <laughs> um, she didn't want me to go to the war. Of course, I had mixed emotions about it. Um, and my the weather sucked in. I couldn't fly for a few days. And then the next time we went out and got scheduled for it, my jet broke and it couldn't fly. And then we went out the next time and then the instructor pilot's jet broke and we couldn't fly. This went on for like like two weeks. It was like, this uh, stopped the stress. And so finally, um, I got out. I got in my check ride. I flew and passed with flying colors, came back. Squadron commander that was doing the training called me in. I was expecting my orders with my hand out. And he goes, uh, you're not going. I'm like, what? And uh, he said, yeah, we're not, we're not sending anybody new. Desert Shield is now turned into Desert Storm. They started dropping bombs, and they don't want any newbies over there to train. And he said, and I've got a squadron full of guys, a, a, a list a mile long that's, that's volunteered, so you are definitely not going to be going. Like, ah, I literally am the last guy in my squadron. <laughs> I'm the guy that missed the war. And so I'm like, well, what do I do? He says, well, I don't have any, any cockpits for you to fly because I've got all this other training. I'm sending you to squadron officer school. I'm like, great, squadron officer school. That's where I learn how to speak and write. When will I ever need to know that? <laughs> <laughs> And so I, 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 go, I go to squadron officer school in Montgomery, Alabama for seven weeks, right? And while my, my buddies are off fighting and winning the war. And, and literally, they fought and won the war and were back at Shaw before I finished my seven-week program. And I show up and they're like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the guy that missed the war. You better help me get smart on this stuff. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm in there. I go to squadron officer school. And the first night that I'm there... 
the first night, I get into my dorm room, and there's a knock on my door. And I open up the door, and there's this, this stout fellow captain who sticks his hands. Hi, I'm Johnny. I'm in the room next door. What's your name? I'm like, well, I'm Chuck, and I have some personal space. Can you please back away? You know, I didn't say that. That's what I was thinking as my... 96 introvertness kicks in, right? And he just comes into my room like, well, come on in, I guess. And so um, he, uh, obviously not an introvert. And so uh, we get in there, but something quickly became um, evident to me. And that is that this guy had a really powerful, courageous faith. And we, we got to talk about the Lord and his enthusiasm and his joy just bubbled out of him. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm missing that. I'm missing that. And, and as we got to talking more and more, and his fervor and passion for the Lord became more and more evident, this whisper came to my heart. And it said, Chuck, ask Johnny the question. <laughs> From 13, 14 years ago. And we're sitting there, and I said, John, I got a question for you. What? What is it, Chuck? He's anxious to answer. Uh, yeah, you just wait, you know. And uh, I said, uh, Johnny, how do the dinosaurs fit in the Bible? <laughs> I hadn't asked anybody else that question for 14 years. And I expected the same response. But you know what I got? Lots of enthusiasm. <laughs> Let me show you. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, and he grabs, he grabbed my Bible that I had there. He said, let's take, let's go to Job. Let's go to Job, Job chapter 43. Let's look at Behemoth. And he goes through the descriptions. Look at this. This is, a, this is a perfect description of a brachiosaurus. His tail is massive like a cedar. That's not a, that's not a hippopotamus. That's not, a, and he, that's not an elephant. And he talks, he drinks up the river. This thing is huge. He says, well, look at Leviathan back in chapter 38. And he, just, he takes this through and he dissects the scripture. And he said, the dinosaurs were created just along with all the other creatures. But when the flood came, they became extinct. And he just he laid out this, this completely revolutionary telling of the creation account with the dinosaurs and the flood that all... And as he was speaking to me, the, the Holy Spirit was saying, this is truth, Chuck. You need to listen. This is truth. And as he did that, 14 years of doubt just started to melt away from me. And for the first time in my life, I could take this book and embrace it as absolute truth. And it transformed my spiritual walk with God. Because Johnny was courageous enough to share a testimony of where the dinosaurs came from with, a, with an old 13-year-old boy. And um, he, he took... See, my, my prayer up until that point... In the squadron, I had a heart for God, and I had a heart for my fellow pilots. And I had been praying for about three or four months, Lord, help me be a witness for you in the squadron, where there's lots of drinking of beer and carousing and that sort of thing to these guys, even though they're smart and sharp, they're, they're lost. And the Lord knew that I needed to have my doubt, doubt taken care of before I could ever boldly proclaim Jesus Christ. And he did it with that divine appointment at Squadron Officer School years later. You know, look what, happened. look what Jesus did with John the Baptist. If you turn back with me into Matthew chapter 11, let's finish out John's story too. 
And, and, and in Mark, there's this, another depiction of this. And, 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 and Matthew skips it. But what it is, it says when, the, when John's disciples asked Jesus that, Jesus turns and he spends the next amount of time healing people. He's healing the blind and healing the lame and restoring. And then he turns back to John's disciples. And, it, and that's where we pick up in Matthew here. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John, again, the things which you hear and see. I mean, his disciples just witnessed these miraculous events. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? But what did you go to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go to see? A prophet? And listen what Jesus says about John, who purposefully went out and asked him if he was the guy. I say to you more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women which I think is pretty much everybody, at least so far. (laughs) There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow! Can you imagine the Savior of the world saying that about you? No one born of men and women is greater than... This is the guy that just said, Are you really the guy, Jesus? And Jesus turns around and said... He's great. He's great. Don't you worry. And he basically restored John's faith. He was in an episode of doubt, but it didn't bother Jesus. And that's the thing you need to tell your kids. Guys, Jesus isn't concerned with your doubt. He doesn't worry that you're going to have a question he can't answer. (laughs) I might as a parent, but we're going to figure it out together, right? Jesus is not afraid of your doubt. And he wasn't afraid of the great John the Baptist's doubt either. But you know what happened? You know, you know why it ended up well? Because John took his doubt to the guy that could answer it. He took his doubt to Jesus. When we sit there and fester with unresolved doubt for years and years and years, it could at any moment creep over into unbelief. John dealt with it right there. And Jesus dealt with it back. John, you're okay. I got you, buddy. I got you. We need to help our children through that, right? And don't and tell them, God's not afraid of your doubt, and I'm not either, all right? Let's deal with it. Let's get you ready. Let's get you prepared, all right, and, and set you on solid ground. Um, the reason I love apologetics is because Jesus says in Romans that no man has an excuse because of the creation. My fingerprint is all over, and that's what I did with my kids. Man, guys, you doubting, let's go on a God walk. And we walk outside, and I'd stop them beside a, a, some, a lawn, and I'd pick a blade of grass. And I'd take that blade of grass, and I'd peel it apart. And I'd say, look at that, and let's go further we, until it's just a little speck of green. And guys, look at this. I'm like, yeah, Dad, it's a blade of grass, you know. <laughs> no, but look, there's a living cell in there. Man, in all of his wisdom, and all of his technology... I don't care how many thousands of years we're still here. They will never be able to replicate from the elements a single living cell. Not one. 
There's a great, there's a great um, um, uh, scientist. His name is John Ter, I believe. Ter or Tor. It's an interesting last name. And he said that four years ago, they predicted that in two years, man, that we would have advanced science enough, we would be able to create our first living cell. And he said, in the last four to five years, we have learned so much about the living cell, they are further now than they've ever been, like ever in the history of man. It is so complicated. So, if you ever watch a YouTube video on the structure of this living cell and the proteins, you need to go. It's remarkable. The odds against it even happening by chance are tr- trillions to, 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 you know, quadrillions to, to one. But for us to even try to invoke it, he said, I will do this. I will give them every component of a living cell and they still will never, ever do it. That is the power of God. I said, guys, you ever doubt God, you just look at a blade of grass, not to mention a, a dog or a cat or a human being or the human eyeball. So apologetics is just huge. You use logic and science and reason and scripture to shore up their faith. And that's what you need. If you're not good at it, just get good at it. Okay? Just do it. (laughs) Okay? All right. I'm going to close up with that. Um, I think, let's see here. All right. I'm sorry. Uh, Can you give me just 60 seconds more for one last story? I got to finish up because I told you about my prayer about to be a witness in the squadron, right? I went back to my squadron after seven weeks of discipleship under Johnny and God strengthened my faith. And I stepped into that squadron with a whole different boldness and courage. And, um, I was able to start witnessing to the pilots in my, in my squadron. And when I was doing my last flight there before I exited the air force, I had found a Jonathan, uh, my, my brother in Christ, Jeff, and we were sitting there, and, and the, the last flight had flown, so they ring the bell, and they open up the bar, and there's drinking, and, and, and um, Jeff and I are drinking our Coke at the table in the middle of that. And our flight, my flight lead, who was a fighter pilot's fighter pilot, he was the demonstration, the F-16 demonstration pilot for the Air Force, and flown under a four-star general, came and sat down at our table, and he said, Chuck, Jeff, I know that you're done here, Chuck, but I have some questions I have to ask you. There's something different about you two, and I need to know what it is. I said, hey, sure. Uh, his name was Rue at the time. That was his call sign. Sure, Rue, uh, what, what can I do for you? And he started asking me really hard questions, <laughs> spiritual questions, because he was had, is in the episode of doubt, right? I remember the last one he asked me, are you telling me that the, like the pygmies in some country way off, they, if they don't know Jesus, they're going to hell, and God would do that to them? And I said, look, Romans says that nobody has an excuse because God says that by the creation himself is the evidence of his God is, is, is there. And so I said, listen, Rob, I, I can't, I know I'm not going to be able to answer that question to your satisfaction. It's a hard question. I'll grant it to you. But God is great, is full of grace and full of mercy, but he also gives evidence and he has his, he, he does what he does. But I'll tell you what, Rob. My, don't let my inability to answer that one question. Could we ask, like an hour and a half, we just went through all the questions that did great. That last one was tough. And, and I said, don't let my inability to answer your, your question keep you from God. Because you do know the truth, and you have heard, and you will be held accountable for that. And he was just like, oh, okay. And you see, it was the, it was the resolution of the doubt that allowed me and my brother in Christ to sit there with a fellow pilot and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of the world. Um, so that's what, you, that's what you're doing when you're helping your kids. You're setting them up 
for appointments with God and, and, and uh, of, of eternal significance with other people. And I've heard multiple testimonies already here that are just powerful like that. And I love that. And so uh, let's get excited about that.